Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome everybody to episode 41 of Push Dose EMS, your monthly educational offering from the Milwaukee County Office of Emergency Management. I'm your host, Jeff Matcha, Clinical Education Manager with the County. Joining me today is the crew of usual suspects. So going down my list, I have uh, Chief Medical Director, Dr. Ben Weston. Dr. Weston, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. Hello, everyone. Assistant Medical Director, Dr. Tom Growley. Dr. Growley, welcome. Hey, everybody. As part of the medical direction team, Joel Valier. Joel, welcome. Hey, good morning, everyone. And our EMS fellow, Dr. Eli Dahlstrom. Dr. Dahlstrom, welcome. Hey, all. Glad to be here. Awesome. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate this as we sort of culminate this year's round of airway training with a little deeper dive into decision-making. Uh, before we get too much into the topic, I will hand it off to Dr. Weston for a message from medical direction. All right. Thanks, Jeff. And thank you again, everyone, for joining. Uh, so one of the most complex and really most critical issues we face in patient care is airway management. Uh, and remember that you've gone through a lot of training, and we want you to be confident in the skills that you have. Now, those skills include a wide spectrum of airway management options, from nasal cannula to intubation to cricothyrotomy. And this podcast will really get you into those specific details. What makes an airway difficult in the field? When should you choose which procedure and which adjunct? How do you identify when to move to your plan B? And perhaps most importantly, how can you leverage the knowledge and skills that you have to ensure that you're choosing the best airway support for the right patient? So as always, looking forward to an interesting, informative, and engaging podcast. Back to you, Jeff. Thank you, Dr. Weston. Certainly, those are the those critical thinking skills that we're looking for. So to help us with a little guidance on those, I will turn it over to our illustrious physicians and our PA Joel and take it away, gentlemen. Hey, y'all. This is Eli Dahlstrom. I am the EMS fellow. I am joined by Joel. Joel, do you want to introduce yourself? Absolutely. Thanks, Eli. So yeah, I've uh, I actually started out in EMS as a EMT basic many years ago. I'm going to date myself going back to 2006, did that for several years, and then uh, went over to emergency medicine where I've been for 10 years over at Frederick uh, in the, the medical college. Glad to have you. So for today's topic, we are going to be talking about difficult airways, uh, the airway in general, really, and we really want to focus on making the right decision for the patient that you have based on, you know, the specific situation you find yourself in, essentially. You know, we are going to talk about choosing the right airway right off the bat. We are going to talk about our plan B. You know, what, what do we do if our first choice fails? And then I will end this segment by talking to you all about a difficult case that I had. Um, this was not that long ago uh, when I was in residency. To start, we're going to talk about situational awareness. First, we want to consider patient factors that contribute to making an airway more difficult. And as we know, there's a lot of things that can make a difficult airway, right? So um, is the patient breathing spontaneously? You know, if, if the patient's breathing spontaneously, you really don't have to rush to intervene. Um, you know, you, you have time and, and you should consider that. Fair. So what about something that we see a lot of in the emergency department uh, or out in the field? Uh, does the patient have a beard? 
So if, if you have a patient and they have a really big beard, you want to identify initially that they might have difficulty if you try to bag them. Uh, certainly, there are some ways that you can intervene and make that more manageable. You can you can apply uh, gel potentially or do a few other things to help uh, get a good seal. But the bag valve mask may not be the best choice in this patient to start. Nice point. Uh, what about something you also see commonly? A um, patient who, let's say, has a very short neck or uh, obese. Yeah, these these are patients you want to identify right away. And, and I mean, they're fairly readily apparent. It, essentially, we need to understand that this is going to be a patient who is going to have a more difficult intubation, should we go for it. Definitely someone that you want to have absolute optimization um, of all the factors you can control before you would ever try to intubate this patient. And then what if we have a uh, person who's had a history of head or neck cancer with something perhaps like oropharyngeal or neck masses, had previous radiation or surgery? Yeah, these these can be some of the trickiest patients, quite frankly. They have very unpredictable anatomy, uh, especially in, in an emergency setting. You don't necessarily know exactly what sort of surgeries they've had, what sort of radiation's gone on. The biggest thing to be aware of is in these patients, you really, really want to have a high suspicion that this would be a difficult intubation to obtain. Um, have all of your backup plans ready. You know, have things like bougie at the ready. And really, frankly, be ready to crike if if you need to. Um, if these these are patients that can be very difficult. Now, what if we have something that's going to be applicable to everybody who's out on the street working in the med units and on the engines? Uh, we have trauma or uh, motor vehicle accidents causing whether it be cranial facial injuries or um, airway trauma. Really good question. Frankly, uh, these can just run the gambit really of of presentations if you have a ton of like face trauma of course you want to have a high concern that you might need to do a crike uh in the very least especially if they're in a c-collar understand that an intubation is going to be difficult right you're going to have very limited mobility of the neck so it's not going to be easy to get a good view so if you if you do intubate having the video laryngoscope of course helps um, having bougie at the ready is incredibly important. You know, really, you have to have good situational awareness. Additionally, these are patients that are often having bleeding into the area. They might be vomiting. You really want to have that suction ready to go in case the airway gets obstructed. All right. So what if uh, what if we think about something you actually just touched upon there? What if they're actively vomiting or something we don't think about all the time? What if they've recently eaten? Yeah, really good question. Um, these are patients that I would approach with the mindset of they are very likely going to need intubation um, if they're vomiting actively and otherwise aren't protecting their airway. This is someone who probably will need to be intubated, and this is someone you definitely want to have suction available for. So the moral of the story here is if you're anticipating a difficult airway, be prepared, You know, know what your initial plan is, and frankly, have a backup plan ready to go. Now, the other half of this, so we, we've been talking about a bunch of patient factors. The other half of this are environmental factors. That's fair. So what, uh, what are we exactly talking about here? Is this where the patient actually is physically? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we see patients in the ER. I'm, I'm very, very lucky 
They're in a hospital bed. They're at about waist height. I don't have any issues intubating these patients. Uh, in the field, it's not the same way. You know, these patients are wedged in between a toilet and a wall. They are lying face down behind their couch, you know, all sorts of different things. Ideally, we want to move the patient if we can. And um, if we are not able to move them easily, pick an airway that is a high likelihood of success, frankly. Um, when I think of this, I think, you know, LMA, frankly, is, is probably the best first choice. If this patient is in a bad situation, I don't have an easy way to get to them and get them moved. You know, something like an LMA that I can, I can place or like an IGEL, essentially, uh, that's, that's not going to give me too many difficulties initially. And then the, the other thing, um, if you have the ability, it is really a good idea to optimize the patient's positioning. So, you know, in the younger children, placing a shoulder roll or in adults, sometimes putting a pad behind their head to get them into a good sniffing position. Uh, doing all of this before you ever take a look if you're going to intubate. Um, or frankly, some of these interventions are, are good just for general airway management. They greatly improve your likelihood of success with whatever you're doing. The long and the short of this is you are going to assess the patient, and based on the information you gather, you're going to develop a plan. So there are certain situations where bag valve mask is going to be your plan A. You know, you have the patient, A. I actually just reviewed a CQIP case. Um, you know, let's say you have a patient, they fall from a decent height and hit their head and they are having sonorous respirations. They are breathing spontaneously, but maybe, maybe not effectively. Um, this is a patient that is probably uh, ideal to do bag valve mask to start. You know, you might progress to intubation down the road, but this is someone you can definitely bag and is, is reasonable to consider first. Um, additionally, pediatric arrests. Uh, sometimes the supraglottic is not optimal, especially if the patient is really small. You may not have the right size with you in your bag. Um, really, really consider bagging first as your first intervention. Alternatively, there are going to be times where uh, the supraglottic is your plan A, and, and the supraglottic is what you want to start out of the gate with. Really, anytime the patient is in a poor position, you know, anytime environmentally they're, you know, stuck behind a toilet or whatever, the supraglottic airway turns into a very ideal choice. Um, additionally, someone who you would anticipate being difficult to bag, you know, they have a big beard or something like that. Supraglottic is a great choice. When you are thinking about this, there are also times when you would consider crike right off the bat. Um, patients who have severe angioedema, um, patients who you can tell from across the room that you're not going to be able to intubate and ventilate. These are patients you, you want to be ready to crike and plan to crike the patient off the bat. And then finally, when should you consider intubation as the first airway intervention? Uh, I think of this with patients who have a significant vomiting and aspiration risk, um, and then patients who you are able to move and get good positioning for. Remember, intubations, you know, they, they are very easy to make more difficult than they need to be. So you, you want the patient to be in the optimal positioning before you attempt an intubation, ideally.
the backup plan that you decide on is going to depend on a bunch of factors again. And really, you, you want to be prepared to identify this. Uh, for one example, uh, if your patient has a foreign body obstruction, let's say they swallowed a marble and it's obstructing their airway, you might start with video laryngoscopy and McGill's and try and pull the marble out. However, in that patient, you need to be prepared um, because your next step is a crike. If that patient is unable to be bagged or you're unable to get a superglottic. All right, that's fair. So let's say we make a choice for managing the airway, but it's not working. How do you identify the idea that it's not actually working? Great question, Joel. There's a few ways that you can very quickly tell, you know, if you have difficulty bagging, you know, it's it's not easy to bag or, you know, you're getting a ton of air leak for one reason or another. Uh, that would be a very easy way to identify that bagging is not effective. Um, if you are listening to lung sounds, let's say you tried to intubate and you don't have lung sounds, you know, that could be a pneumothorax, could be something like that. But it could also be that you are having some other failure of your airway intervention. Uh, declining SpO2 is often a little bit of a later sign, but is something to be aware of. And certainly if your pulse ox is not improving at all, you should consider that, that perhaps your airway intervention was not adequate. If you don't have an appropriate appearing uh, entitled CO2 waveform, that is another indicator. Uh, really the big take home is you want to have frequent reassessment of the patient after you perform these interventions. Uh, that's that's the biggest way to catch these things early. Okay, so we've decided that we have our first choice. Our first choice is going to be let's do BVM, and it's not working. What should our backup plan be? That's a great question, Joel. So ideally, we are tailoring the backup plan to the patient. Uh, if this patient is someone who has a big beard and the bagging's not working let's consider switching to an LMA. Um, if the patient is vomiting everywhere, consider intubation. If you have this trauma patient, you know, they just had a motorcycle accident and they have a whole bunch of abrasions and cuts and, and their face is just really, really messed up. Probably time to think about criking the patient. Is the patient's jaw clenched really, really uh, hard and you just cannot manipulate their jaw at all? Ask yourself, can I bag? If yes, continue bagging. But if no, you know, we're, we're probably landing at a crike at that point. And so, I mean, you have identified some pretty scary scenarios um, that we've seen out in the field, I'm sure. But uh, from a personal standpoint, Eli, uh, any difficult cases you want to share? Yeah, I, uh, I have one from uh, a while ago in my residency. Uh, this, of course, was in the ER, so this wasn't pre-hospital setting, but uh, I think highlights a lot of the issues that we have. So this was an older patient. Um, this was a patient who had been sedentary, and, and frankly, they were chair-bound. They, they, I think, hadn't moved from like a couch in two years. It was, it was a bad situation, frankly. Um, the patient was brought in and was unresponsive, but was spontaneously breathing initially. Uh, after a while, we placed them on a non-rebreather mask, which helped for a, a little bit. It was a temporizing measure. Uh, however, they did start to, con you know, continue to deset and and being unresponsive. You know, our options are limited. Surely, 
you know, we we really don't love the idea of things like CPAP on a patient like this who's who's not responsive, not able to intervene and take the mask off, right? So so we really decided that intubation was probably going to be the best course of action for this patient. Now we knew ahead of time that this patient had a few factors making the intubation very likely to be difficult. This was a patient who had a very short neck. Uh, as they had been couch-bound for a few years, they had very severe torticollis with their head more or less just glued to their left shoulder, um, which, frankly, should have been a huge red flag and should have been something that we considered a lot more than we did at the time. Um, but we were prepared. We, we did have video laryngoscopy. We had our bougie ready. We had our trike kit ready. Um, and we were able to bag the patient reasonably. So we gave medications for rapid sequence intubation, um, and we began our intubation attempt. Um, due to the severe torticollis, uh, it was just, it was not possible to get a good view. Um, and, and quite frankly, we, we spent much longer than we should have trying to get the tube um, traditionally with the stylet. Um, we did eventually progress to the bougie and we were ultimately able to get the tube, um, but frankly, we should have progressed to a cricothyrotomy uh, much sooner. The patient did actually deset and briefly code on us during this intubation, um, but as we were able to get the airway and start effectively oxygenating and ventilating the patient, uh, we were able to recover the patient. The big takeaway point, the big learning lesson I had from this was that um, not only do you need to identify the factors and be prepared with backup plans, but you need to actually go to the backup plan and, and identify, hey, this isn't working out. Let's switch to plan B. So that was my really big learning lesson from this case. Um, you know, don't just identify what you need to do, but do it. So the take-home points for, for this uh, podcast are we, we want you to be able to identify um, situations that will make airways more difficult and identify when you would choose different types of airways. When, when do you choose to bag the patient first versus place a supraglottic versus crike versus intubation as your first option? We want you to be able to identify a backup plan, and we want you to feel empowered and feel confident to switch to your backup plan should you need to. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Dr. Dahlstrom. Greatly appreciate that information. That critical thinking skill when it comes to airway management is of great importance. Uh, hopefully that will encourage our providers listening to, to really assess that patient, take the steps that are necessary to give the best outcome for their patient. So we appreciate your time. Thank you to everybody that's listening. This is our end of the year, so I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday season, and we will see you again in January. Stay safe.